Welcome back to Moral IT, where I bring ethics into the equation. From why it matters that the data you tap into your phone on the morning commute stays private, to whether algorithms that disproportionately affect groups of users can actually have a mutant mind of their own. You'll be hearing about the ethical realities, implications, and hopefully some answers from the very people researching these technologies. In 2015, Google released TensorFlow to the public, a tool that helped develop artificial intelligence algorithms. In many ways, making this open source code was a great thing for Google to have done. It was used to help doctors detect new respiratory diseases, to prescribe the right antibiotics, and it was even going to make it easier to discover whole new planets. That sounds great. But when an anonymous Reddit user calling themselves deepfakes used TensorFlow to edit Gal Gadot's face onto the body of a performer in a pornographic video, it became clear that in trying to do a good thing, Google had actually opened the Pandora's box of open source code. So deepfakes were born. Ultra-realistic but fake videos that essentially allowed anyone's face to be superimposed onto another's body. You may still be thinking about the potential for these fake videos to bring about some real positive change. And if so, good for you for seeing the intrinsic good in people. Unfortunately, I'm here to break the news to you that people can and will in fact be very bad. And it's because of those with more malicious intents that deepfake technology is perhaps more well known for its misuses. As Google watched in horror, more and more videos popped up on the internet of celebrities saying and doing things that they never did. But now these videos weren't just of users dubbing celebrity faces into porn videos, but crushes, exes, acquaintances, even strangers became victim to these vicious video doctoring attacks. With its sights set high on revolutionizing medicine, Google had unwittingly facilitated some troubling self-gratification and even harassment of unconsenting victims. I'm thrilled to be joined again by Dr. Carl Oman, whose research about the digital afterlife industry you heard about in our last episode. He's back today to talk about the ethical problems we encounter when we try to form moral evaluations about this deep fake pornography industry. He's hopefully going to be offering a solution to the problem he calls the pervert's dilemma. Welcome back to Moral IT, Dr. Oman. It's great to be speaking to you again. Good to be back. Thank you. So firstly, it would be really helpful if you could explain how deepfake pornography gets created and how accessible it is to actually create these sorts of videos. So it's getting increasingly simple. I don't think you need much technical skills to create a deepfake. You just log on to the right form and download appropriate technology or software and then you don't need that many that much data uh, you could basically just scrape someone's Instagram profile it provided that they they post a lot of selfies and then you're ready to go it's also getting commercialized increasingly that you see these apps popping up where you can just insert a picture of yourself and then superimpose it on any any video from music videos to movies and, and, and so on. It's getting shared on, on Instagram a lot. But of course, the main area of usage for this kind of technology is, as you pointed out, pornography. So if we're specifically talking about these deepfake pornography videos, who are the typical targets of 
kind of non-consensual pornographic attacks? I don't think anyone has the exact numbers, but there was, I think, a Dutch study last year that showed that it was something like 99% women, most of whom celebrities. So it's a very, very gender phenomenon, sadly, or I don't know. I mean, it's it's what one would, would expect. It's pretty clear that there is a disproportionate effect um, towards women in, in really kind of scary ways. And I think most people would feel pretty confident about the fact that deep fake pornography must be morally wrong. But as you point out in your research, to make this statement that deep fake porn is wrong pretty much comes from an intuition, um, a feeling or an instinct that it just must be bad. But as you point out, thinking something must be bad isn't enough to justify the sorts of policy changes that we need to protect these victims of deep fake porn attacks. We need to do better, that's clear, and we need to set out the ethical logic that we actually use to condemn this phenomenon. But why is it so tricky to set out the ethics of deep fake pornography? And what is the pervert's dilemma? So I would start by saying that in some ways it's really easy to define or condemn why deep fakes are bad. Because you could always make the, the, the argument, the kind of consequentialist argument, that it may be harmful to a person's reputation. These videos leak out and someone may take them for, for authentic and so on. And, you know, people may feel very uncomfortable knowing that there are videos of them on the web and so on. I fully support that argument. I just don't think that that covers the full, that doesn't tell the whole story, basically. So you could always counter that argument by saying, well, assume that someone was just sitting in their home with a computer that is not connected to the internet, just creating deepfakes for their own private use or doing it on their phone. Would that suddenly be completely ethically permissible? I, I think most people would intuitively say no. I mean, it doesn't make it more permissible, or at least it doesn't make it completely permissible, just because you don't share it, or just because you make sure that the person in question is never going to find out that you did it. Now, if you grant that, you will find yourself in a tricky ethical dilemma. Because if the video isn't shared online, anywhere, on, on a forum or a site where anyone can access it. Then the question is, what is the difference between the deepfake and just any sexual fantasy? And of course, we can name a, a few differences, saying, well, the one is, is technological in nature and the other is biological in nature. If you take the sharing out of the equation, as we have done, the question is, is that distinction between technological and biological really a morally relevant distinction? And it turns out it's very difficult to find a morally relevant distinction between a sexual fantasy and a deepfake, at least insofar as I can see. And this is what I've referred to as the pervert's dilemma. Most people seem to be fine with sexual fantasies, but we're not fine when that fantasy takes a material form in the shape of a deepfake video, even though it is not shared. And the question is, 
why do we have that intuition? What if someone were to argue that deep fakes require more ill intent or pre-planning than a sexual fantasy? I mean, someone had to sit down on a computer and work out a way to do something that will hurt someone, whereas a sexual fantasy could pop up in their head at any moment. Yes, I mean, that that would be a viable argument. The, the problem with that argument, though, it seems, is that deepfakes are very easy to create today. So let's say that you have an app where you could basically just click a button and there you have it. So it doesn't really require that much commitment. Compare that to a person who has a poor, poor ability to imagine. So, you know, they really try hard to imagine having sex with someone in their head. Well, if you follow the logic of that argument, you would say that, well, the person with a sexual fantasy, but a poor imagination is actually creating more harm or is, you know, less ethically permissible than the person who creates a deepfake with a very good app. So in that, at least to me, doesn't intuitively make sense that the harder you try to imagine, the greater the harm you're creating. I also wouldn't see why, you know, let's assume that a large group of people would spend a lot of time imagining or fantasizing about sexual encounters. Would that be a worse world than the world we're living in now? I struggle to see why. I agree. I mean, it seems ridiculous that we would make those sorts of judgments that if someone spent ages trying to come up with a sexual fantasy, then that would be a sufficient ethical condition to make it worse than an instant, instantly made deepfake. So just to clarify, you're not saying that deepfake pornography is perfectly acceptable, just that it's very difficult to find a justification for saying it's morally wrong which doesn't at the same time condemn things that we don't usually consider wrong, like sexual fantasies. Yes, thank you for, for clarifying that. I've seen people citing me actually, assuming that I am sort of legitimizing deepfake porn, saying that it's as morally permissible or impermissible as sexual fantasies, which is absolutely not what I'm saying. I am saying that it is much worse than sexual fantasies, and it is different in nature from sexual fantasies. The problem is defining why and how. And even if we have an intuition that it is, well, that doesn't go all the way to explaining our intuitions. It seems that our moral intuitions can be kind of hypocritical. And I think reading your research really, that was one of the things that jumped out to me, that there's many instances in which we're instinctively comfortable with an idea of something, like we are with sexual fantasies, but there's no actual real quality that makes these sexual fantasies more permissible than something we're quite horrified by, like deepfakes. Is there any hope? Can this dilemma be solved? I absolutely think that it can be solved. And I don't blame people, really, who react with their guts. Often our, our, our gut is a quite good indication of whether something is right or wrong. But as we start to regulate and as we creates formal rules and norms on this matter. We need to do better than that. We can't just go with our, our guts, but we need actual arguments. 
So to answer your question, can this be solved? Absolutely. And I think there, there may be multiple approaches to solving it. I have suggested one solution, which is based on a model that I call levels of abstraction. And it's really a quite long and technical argument, but um, I'm going to try to to sum it up as briefly as I can. So the argument that I'm making is that if you reduce it to this very simple case of sort of agent A and agent B, so you have one individual that takes the face of uh, another individual and creates a deep fake, what is the difference between that and a sexual fantasy? Well, I'm happy to grant that there is no ethically or morally relevant distinction between those two cases. If you look at them in isolation, but as we all know, in reality, actions do not take place in isolation, but they always take place in, in a cultural and political context. So if we instead look at this from a much higher level of abstraction, so we look at the phenomenon of sexual fantasies and the phenomenon of deepfakes, so not just the individual actions. Well, all of a sudden, the, we get a lot of interesting ethical distinctions to, to play with here. So, for instance, you could argue, as, as we discussed towards the beginning of, of this episode, that deepfakes are disproportionately used, systemically or systematically used, to harm women. It's produced by predominantly by men, and the victims are predominantly women, which means that it's a very gendered phenomenon. Now, sexual fantasies are not a gendered phenomenon. This is something that we know from research. It's not just something that men do to women. And even though the content of a sexual fantasy, such as a rape fantasy and so on, could be morally impermissible, it's very difficult to argue that a sexual fantasy per se is ethically impermissible. Now, that's different with, with deepfakes. With deepfakes, you could say, well, regardless of the content, provided that it's sexual in nature or pornographic in nature, we would say that it's unethical because it has that function in the larger cultural and political landscape in which it operates. And sexual fantasies simply don't have that social function. I see. So essentially, the reason we can understand the steps we take to say that deepfake pornography is wrong hinges it on the way that it has this systematic, wider effect on gender oppression. And we can't morally evaluate an individual deepfake pornographic video by itself because its ethical significance comes from the wider societal harm it does. Yes, so as an undergraduate, I was trained as a sociologist. And I think uh, the approach that I'm taking to ethics is, is quite sociological, in the sense that ethicists always like to reduce as much information as possible until they only have agent A and agent B and, you know, probability P, and then it's some form of action in between them. And that's good because it's, you know, it's very generalizable. But often when, what you do when you reduce a case to, to these individuals or these actors without any real properties, they're just A and B, you have also reduced all the ethically significant properties that they have. I mean, they, agent A and B don't have 
They don't have a gender. They don't have race. They're not part of any uh, collective identities whatsoever. And, you know, once you start reducing those qualities, you've also reduced what makes most cases ethically significant. Of course, you could always use a case like murder, for instance. It's no problem by saying, you know, Agent A murdered Agent B without any reason. I don't need any information about their gender or race or collective identities or, or, or whatnot, because I know that is wrong. In other cases, such as deepfakes, I actually need a lot of societal context in order to make an ethical judgment or evaluation of the, of the situation. So I think it's, it's pretty much a sociological approach to ethics that I'm applying here. Right. And you also apply this kind of sociological approach to ethics to other situations to explain this kind of level of abstractions process. You mentioned that hate crimes are another good example of how moral actions can be considered harmful on different levels, whether the individual or the wider societal. Could you give us an example of how this ethical analysis applies in, in a hate crime situation? So one maybe isn't a hate crime, but I think it's very illustrative of this point. So one example that is sometimes brought up in the literature, it's from a university in one of the southern states of the United States. And it's a college that is arranging a so-called Old Southern Ball. So it's it's a ball and the theme of the, the student ball is the Old South. And what they do is that they recruit black students who will pose as slaves at this ball. They volunteer and they get paid and so on, but they pose as slaves, which a lot of people find quite appalling and very problematic. Now, if you reduce that to the level, or this case, to the level of the individuals saying, well, you have Agent A, which is hiring Agent B to pose as a slave. What's the problem with that? Everyone is consenting. Everyone is happy. No one was forced to do anything. Maybe everyone enjoyed the ball. Now, if you look at it instead from this sociological higher level of abstraction level that I mentioned, then, of course, you need to take also the history of the United States and, and black people into consideration. And all of a sudden, it's not just about Agent A and Agent B, but it's about two collective identities and the relationship between those. The collective identity is also present in these micro-individual situations that you can't really reduce history, you can't reduce politics from the private sphere, at least not if we want to talk about the, the morally relevant dimensions of it. When it comes to hate crimes, we don't just look at the individual as an isolated individual actor, but we also consider their membership in any collective identities. Right. Yeah, that's really helpful for understanding how you work through this deepfake example as well. Thank you. So if we could circle back to some of the points that we touched upon earlier, you mentioned this idea that the materiality of deepfakes is something concrete, something shareable, unlike a sexual fantasy, is still not a sufficient ethical condition for allowing us to condemn one over the other. But I'm really interested in where other material art forms that can depict people 
performing pornography in really realistic terms might be able to fit into our moral evaluations or whether they can. I mean, is it fair that I think we're more likely to be comfortable with seeing pornographic or sexually problematic content represented in a book like Lolita or in a really realistic drawing that uses pen and paper than we are seeing it in a deep fake pornography on, on our screens? I mean, I, I think you're right there in saying that we are more comfortable with that kind of depictions. But that is, I think, because of the social function of those depictions that you already mentioned. It is not, at least not insofar as I'm aware, a common phenomenon that people, men, are sitting you know, in their rooms drawing highly realistic images of people that they want to have sex with. If that were to become a broad, you know, widespread social phenomenon that would have a social impact, yeah, sure, I think that we'd be right in condemning that phenomenon. But as of today, it is not. And the same thing with uh, literature, as you mentioned, you mentioned Lolita. Insofar as I'm aware, that is a novel that is not used primarily for by pedophiles seeking sexual pleasure. If it would be, so let's say that there would be a phenomenon of uh, pornographic literature about children, I think we'd be very right in condemning that phenomenon. But we need to take the social context into consideration. We can't just say that every instance of literature that involves sexual activities with a child are morally impermissible. I mean, if that were the case, there would be a lot of ancient Greek literature that we would have to abandon altogether. So we need to consider the social context. And, and this is not trying to redeem pedophiles or any other sexually predatory behavior. I mean, I repeat, I think that we are right in condemning the phenomenon as such. And the wider political and social context is present in the individual cases. But you know, if we go back to the highly realistic drawing, that is just not yet a significant phenomenon in society that we need to, to consider. Maybe it will be one day, but I strongly doubt that. Yeah, I hope not. But I think, yeah, it goes back to this idea that we can't just consider, in this example, we can't consider just Agent A and Agent B. We have to keep bringing it into the macro lens and looking at the wider impacts. I'm giving you another scenario, but suppose there existed a technology that eroded this distinction between the sexual fantasy in someone's head and the deep fake video on their computer. So this technology would be able to take data from their brain and feed it into their computer hard drive and therefore create a permanent shareable file from a sexual fantasy that they intended no one to be able to see. What implications would this sort of technology have on our ability to condemn deep fakes more than sexual fantasies? We're getting into quite scary territory here, but do you think we'd be right in having to censor people's thoughts if there was a way that having a non-consensual fantasy about someone could actually become something very real in a shareable file on a computer that could hurt someone. Just to see that I understand you correctly, the share, shareability or materialization 
of that fantasy would still be a choice from the agent in question. Is that right? Yes, definitely. So there's the potential. I mean, I'm not imagining a situation where we can read everyone's thoughts and see their sexual fantasies, but I guess I'm interested in this process whereby something that only existed in your head then became something that existed on a computer that someone could share if they wanted to. I see. So, I mean, I, I don't think we have to go to any futuristic scenarios for that. I think that largely already exists. People tend to talk about these interfaces between our brains and computers as something that is an entirely new or futuristic technology. But I mean, if you think about it, that technology is already here and it's called hands. We can do plenty of things with our hands and keyboards. What we essentially do when we type or click on something on a computer is that we're sending an electronic signal from our brain down through our arms into our hands that pushes a key on our keyboard, which sends a signal further into the computer and does something. And I mean, this is in a matter of microseconds or at least seconds. I'm not so convinced by this talk of creating faster interfaces between the brain and the computer. I would argue that we're already there. You can do a lot with your hands. So in terms of uh, materializing a fantasy, I really don't see what what the distinction between that and just having a a sort of sexual fantasy about someone doing something, searching for a video on the internet of someone performing that kind of sexual action, and then just superimposing someone's face onto that. That is, to me, more or less the same thing as just having your exact fantasy materialized. We're already there, and I think that, again, it's problematic insofar as it is a social phenomenon with a social function in society. And and today, it is. It really makes me realize my own biases against technology when you put it that way. Because as you say, our hands are already able to make this direct link between what we're thinking in our head and what we want to see on our computer. But maybe it speaks to, I guess, a wider technophobia that literature, you know, sci-fi tends to imagine if a computer could read our minds as a really scary possibility. But as you say, ethically, it's actually a really similar situation to the choice we already have every day with typing something with our hands on the computer. Yes. I mean, I think that objections of that sort that are speaking to the, the distinction between the immaterial fantasy and the material deepfake, they're predicated on what I perceive as a false dichotomy of the immateriality of one's consciousness and the materiality of the computer. I think that one's consciousness is very material. I mean, it's, it is literally signals in your brain creating images in your head. And that is roughly, I mean, I'm not making any other comparisons. I'm not saying that computers think or have a consciousness, but I am nevertheless saying that both are material in essence. If I take a, a, a bullet through my head, Surely, I mean, I will stop thinking, which more or less proves the materiality of my fantasies. I'm not very convinced by this dichotomy or this distinction between the immaterial consciousness and the material 
technology. They are to me both material in nature, making, and they're both shareable in nature. I could certainly tell someone about my fantasy or draw my fantasy or express it in any other form. So I would argue that a fantasy is just as portable as a deepfake is, even though its portability may require some more effort on my behalf in that I need to actually formulate what I'm fantasizing about instead of just clicking send when I've created the deepfake. That's a fascinating point, that the cognitive process of thinking up a sexual fantasy actually produces something with the potential to be just as material and just as shareable as the deepfake porn created on a computer. All that's needed is for someone to type or to paint or to vocalize a sexual fantasy in their head to one other person for the fantasy to become as concrete as the file of pornography on a computer. And after that, as you said, this painting or story could be retold and shared countless times by different people, just like a file on a computer. Thinking about it that way really brings us back to this crucial point you make in your research, that it's just not enough for us to use intuition alone to morally separate sexual fantasies from deepfake pornography. Intuitions or gut feelings are often likely right. And in this case, I wonder whether our gut feeling might be heightened by our fears about the potential for technology to be misused. I think the possibility of sharing a file on a computer may always scare us a little bit more than the possibility of sharing a fantasy we've created with another person, regardless of their similarities. Well, to wrap up what's been another really great conversation, the reason that we have a duty to have conversations like this and for people like Dr. Oman to be pinning down the ethical steps that we can take to evaluate this sorts of deepfake technology rather than simply saying, you know, it must be bad, is because it seems, as it stands, that deepfakes have really fallen through a gap in the law in both the US and the UK. I mean, this means that the threat that they're posing to, as we've seen, their overwhelmingly female victims, isn't adequately being dealt with. Despite Reddit banning that initial deepfake chat that saw thousands of users even giving each other tips on how to best revenge deepfake their exes, your legal options if you're on the receiving end of this sorts of video are pretty unclear and quite confusing. Thank you again for being here, Dr. Oman. I feel really privileged to have been able to talk with you on, on this subject. Well, thanks a lot for having me again. Look forward to visiting the podcast again sometime in the future. You've been listening to Moral IT, where I put ethics into the equation. If you're enjoying the podcast so far, feel free to check out some of the other content on the Moral IT website.